Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everybody. Today we're joined by Doug Wilson to talk about reenacting. Doug Wilson has been reenacting for many, many years and is also a radio host. Today we sit down to talk about reenacting, what it's like, what you can expect, and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, today we are joined by Doug Wilson. How are you today, sir? I'm doing fine, Andy. How about yourself? I'm doing very good. Uh, we're meeting a little different this time than face-to-face. <laughs> very true. Yeah. We, we have our normal clothes this time, not our... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, so your, your listeners can't see it, but uh, for you... Uh, I, I wore my uh, my 140th Pennsylvania uh, ah, nice. reenactor shirt. So we're the same rank go. today. You don't outrank me right now. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's true. Although I my my shirt does have my uh, my unit rank. I should qualify that. So well, our listeners are probably a little confused, but today we're going to be talking about reenactments. Uh, we actually met doing reenactments. Um, Doug, you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, unit you're talking about, who you reenact with, your rank, so they are understanding? <laughs> sure. Uh, so first off, uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to you. Uh, this is my first podcast. <laughs> uh, I've never done, I've never listened to a full podcast, so uh, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the unit that I am a member of is the 140th Pennsylvania Volunteers. We represent Company A, which was formed in Greene County, Pennsylvania, which is the southwesternmost county of Pennsylvania. Uh, the uh, unit, when it, the real unit uh, at the time of the American Civil War was formed on the Waynesburg College campus. It was formed by students, faculty, and staff from Waynesburg College, as well as members of uh, the Waynesburg community and Greene County community. And then a little over 100 years later, the, uh, the reenacting unit was also formed on the Waynesburg College campus by students, faculty, and staff, as well as members of the Waynesburg uh, and Greene County community. Uh, and so the, the unit that we represent, uh, because we actually represent a unit that is from our area and because uh, it was formed by guys from that area, we, we take a lot of pride uh, in, in our portrayal of that unit and um, the, the, the way that we approach it is probably a little different than some other units. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's, it's probably exactly the same as some units. So, uh, and, you know, and Annie, you and I have, have had a conversation similar to this in the past. You know, every reenacting unit uh, has their own way of doing things. And mm-hmm. so I, I want your listeners to understand that uh, the information that I'm going to pass along is in regards to my unit. I am not saying this is the best way. I am not saying this is the only way. I am saying this is how our unit does it. Mm-hmm. So your unit's 100 years old? So, no. <laughs> no. 
No, the uh, the our listeners, our listeners might have thought you're a hundred years old yourself. There, <laughs> uh, I, there are times I feel that. Oh <laughs> no, no, the uh, the units. Uh, let's see, we are twenty. Oh, I'd have to sit and do the math. 27, 28 years old. Um, I'm actually a founding father of the reenacting unit. Um, we, uh, I mean, do you want to hear the story of how we actually got formed, the, the reenacting portion? Sure. I, I, well, yeah, I'd love to hear it. So let's actually take you back to how I got involved or interested in the American Civil War. When I was in fifth grade, uh, I had a wonderful teacher. His name was Mr. Rubio. He was a big history buff, and uh, he put a real heavy emphasis on the American Civil War. And I, man, I just went whole hog, uh, <laughs> so much so that I had gone to a, a little living history event. And there were some reenactors there. And uh, I convinced my dad, who at the time was the president of the school board, to allow Mr. Rubio to bring a reenactor to our class to set up a display and everything. So then fast forward from fifth grade, uh, I never really, I never lost my interest in the Civil War. Um, I, I just, I, I ended up, you know, life got in the way. Mm -hmm. I uh, graduated from college and uh, one of the college professors, a gentleman by the name of Bill Parker, uh, who was a minister. He was also uh, one of my uh, professors at Waynesburg College. And we had become friends through college and, and remained friends afterwards. He calls me up. He says, hey, you're into this Civil War stuff. Uh, did you ever think about joining a reenacting it. I said, well, yeah, I, yeah I, I thought about it. He goes, well, uh, why don't we start a reenacting unit? I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> why not? Uh, and so he and I uh, got together with a gentleman who worked on campus as part of the physical plant, a gentleman by the name of Roger Doty. And uh, one of my former roommates from Waynesburg College, a gentleman by the name of Brian Megley, we called him Lurch because he stood six foot four, just a huge guy. And the four of us sat down and uh, kind of mapped out a rough idea of, of how we wanted this unit to, to look. Uh, we, we actually initially toyed with the idea of having the unit be a um, uh, a cavalry unit until really? we realized how expensive that was going to be. <laughs> uh, and so uh, Roger Doty, I think it was Roger, made the suggestion. He says, "Well, why don't why don't we portray the 140th Company A? They were actually formed on the Waynesburg College campus, as I already mentioned earlier, um, and." We, we sort of started kicking some ideas around. Uh, Roger had ancestors that had been members of the 140th. Now, not in Company A, but in the 140th. And so for him, it was, it was a, a work of love. Um, as it would turn out, 20 years later, I would come to find out that I am actually a direct descendant of a member 
of the original 140th Company A. Um, unbeknownst to me, I, I did not know. Uh, I can tell you that story later. Uh, but we sat down, we mapped out a constitution, created a set of bylaws, and um, the, the rest, pardon the pun, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and how did you guys get members to, to join your group? How did you grow the regiment? So at, at the outset, uh, it was just the four of us. We started doing some local events, uh, and word started to get around with the, uh, with the media. Now, it didn't hurt that I worked in, uh, worked in radio, and so I was able to talk about, hey, you know, we've got this little reenacting unit. We're going to be at the 4th of July celebration. We're going we're gonna to march in the rain day parade. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And so local individuals started coming out and it was just at the outset, uh, it was just word of mouth. Uh, there was, we didn't really do any recruiting. Um, and uh, even to this day, we don't recruit. We kind of let our, uh, we, we kind of let our reputation speak for itself. If people are interested they can reach out to us and uh, we, there's a process uh, to, uh, to joining our unit. You can't just join, uh, you have to apply. There's a membership uh, and I won't get into all of that, but, um, and again, not every unit does it that way. This is just how my unit does it. Uh, and it, it's, it served us well. Um, and when we set the unit up, we wanted to try to be as faithful to the original unit as we could. And so we, in the original 140th, during the American Civil War, they elected their first captain and they elected their first first sergeant. We decided to do the same thing. We elected our first captain. And since Bill Parker was the gentleman who kind of got the balls rolling, we elected him captain. We decided at that time not to have a sergeant initially uh, because we really didn't need NCOs, non-commissioned officers. Um, we instead uh, sort of trial by fire started trying to learn what we could. Now, we were very fortunate. There was a, uh, a union infantry unit just north of us in the uh, Washington and into the Pittsburgh area, uh, the ninth Pennsylvania, great group of guys that we still work with uh, to this day, but they took us under their wing, helped us to uh, learn the manual of arms, the drill and the et ceteras. And it, that was a huge, huge help. We then started working with uh, the seventh union, Virginia, uh, some now refer to them as the seventh West Virginia. Uh, they actually formed at almost the same time that we did, maybe a little bit sooner than us. Um, actually, I take that back. Uh, they actually predated us by a few years, but, uh, they, they were in a process of sort of rejuvenating themselves and, and we started working with them as well. Um, but to, to get back to 
how we set things up with electing our first captain and, and our first first sergeant. When we reached a point that we thought we needed a sergeant, uh, we then voted on our first first sergeant, and, and that was Roger Doty. And within a year or two after that, our numbers had started to grow. Bill Parker, being a pastor, uh, came to us at one event and said, look, guys, uh, my schedule just isn't going to allow me to do this as much as I would like to. I'm not leaving the unit, but I am going to step down as your captain. Instead, I would like permission to become your chaplain. Now, at the time, a chaplain could be an officer. And so we made him our chaplain captain. We then, <laughs> we, we then uh, sort of pushed Roger Doty in front of the bus at, uh, at a big event. Uh, we had been working with uh, a battalion known as the Mifflin Guard, and we made arrangements to uh, present Roger Doty with a, uh, a command sword and uh, promoted him on the field in front of everyone so that there was no way he could tell us no. So he became, uh, he became our captain. Uh, and then we, uh, we decided that members of our unit that wanted to be an NCO, a non-commissioned officer, uh, were going to have to earn that rank. It would not be a voted position. It would not be an appointed position. In our unit, you have to earn the rank and uh, the unit numbers have to support the rank. In other words, if there's only two guys, there's no sense having an NCO. Mm -hmm. When we reached a point that we needed a corporal, we did a test uh, and it was actually in three sections. There was a written exam, there was an oral exam, and then there was a practical exam. Uh, the, the written exam was, it was uh, the history of the 140th, as well as a basic history of the American Civil War. The oral exam, uh, the individuals came before a panel of three men, two from our unit and one from the 9th Pennsylvania, because we decided we wanted there to be an impartial individual so that it wasn't just, you know, oh, well, we like him more. We're going to give him the rank. We wanted somebody from the outside to go, well, this guy really is an idiot. There's no way he should be an NCO. Or this guy really knows his stuff. We, I, I think you guys would do well to have him. Uh, and then the practical exam was, uh, in, in some respects, the, the most difficult because you had to form a you had to form a company. You had to take them from one point in the parking lot and march them into each corner of the parking lot back to where you started, but facing in the other direction. Now, it didn't say how to do that. So you could maneuver the men in any way you wanted to. But the, again, those three individuals were watching to see, well, how did they do it? How did they handle this under pressure? Did they? Um, did they simply say break ranks and then reform over here? Break ranks like Lincoln, the Lincoln story. You know that one? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, you know, there is a time and a place for that, but there's also uh, 
uh, on the field, you know, as well as I do, Andy, that um, you, you can't just always say break ranks and reform over here. For, um, for the listeners, if you don't know, there's a great tale of Lincoln during the Black Hawk Wars. He's in charge of this unit and they, there's a fence they need to pass through. He doesn't know how to do it. So he tells them to break rank, walk through the fence and then reform. So that's that's what we were talking about there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and for those again, for those of you who may not be aware, you know, the break ranks basically means they're no longer in a solid formation. It's just like ants or cockroaches scattering when you turn on a light uh, and then, you know, reforming and they saw the line on the other side. So anyway, uh, be it good or bad, um, I was the one who uh, was who did the best uh, in in that first series, and so I was uh, promoted to the rank of corporal. Uh, it would be several years before I actually uh, became a sergeant, um, and actually, I I. I kind of jumped from corporal straight to first sergeant of our company because we needed it. Um, and I, I continue to serve in that capacity. Now uh, there have there, the, the guys have joked about uh, making me an officer and, and I do not want that. I do not need that. I think I portray a first sergeant. Well, um, when our unit joined Bernie's division uh, a few years ago, uh, Bernie's was gracious enough to welcome us with open arms. And uh, just before the pandemic hit, uh, I was promoted within the Bernie's division to the rank of Sergeant Major. And so when we're at the large events, uh, I turn over uh, the rank of first Sergeant or Sergeant to one of the other NCOs in, in our unit they handle that, and then I step up to the role of sergeant major within Bernie's division. So, and that's how we met sergeant major uh, yeah. at some events. So, so tell us a bit about, you know, for a listener, you're a private in the reenactment. You're going to show up. You're going to listen to what you're told to do. You're going to carry your gun. You're going to do drill. Um, but as a first sergeant and as a sergeant major, what are some of your responsibilities? Oh, um, so I'm not sure how to explain this because if, if you've got newcomers, you know, we, we keep throwing around, you know, corporal and, and sergeant and first sergeant and, and NCO. So in the reenacting field, we do our best to portray the, uh, the army as it would have been portrayed during the American Civil War era. And so each, each company of men, which during the American Civil War would have been 100 men, um, give or take, because you, you also would have officers, you would have captains and lieutenants and, and the like. Um, but you, you have to have a chain of command. You have to have uh, men to help train the men, keep an eye on the men, make sure that the men are doing what they are supposed to be doing. And for those of you who are listening, uh, you, you'll notice I keep using the, the, the phrase men, boys, the guys. Um, during the American Civil War era, women were not allowed in the ranks. There were women that did get in. And, and that's all. That's a podcast for a whole other time. <laughs> you, Andy. 
Um, so please don't think that I'm being derogatory by, by leaving uh, ladies out of this conversation. But uh, the, the overwhelming majority of soldiers were men. Uh, but I digress. Um, so as a first sergeant, um, I am in charge of the company. Now, I know that there are some officers that are sitting out there listening to this right now going, no, you're not. That's the captain's job. <sighs> it really isn't. Uh, the, the captain's job is to uh, maneuver the men on the battlefield and uh, to uh, accomplish the goals that have been set forth by uh, the battalion, the division, et cetera, uh, or the colonel. Uh, it is the first sergeant's job to try to keep as many of those men in his company alive. The captain, no disrespect to the captains, the captain does not care. His job is to accomplish a victory on the field at all costs. The first sergeant's job is to try to keep the casualty numbers down. Um, now, at reenactments, obviously, we do not have actual casualties, but we are there to make sure that there aren't actual casualties. We're there to make sure, you know, Andy just started laughing, but it's true. <laughs> we're, we're there to make sure that the guys are drinking water. We're there to make sure that the guys are loading and firing their rifles properly. Um, if there's a uh, weapon that misfires or doesn't fire, the first sergeant either needs to step up and take that rifle and you know help work on it, or see to it that someone uh, that is experienced does do that. Um, as for the sergeant major, uh, quite frankly, the sergeant major is the first sergeant of the division or the battalion. Um, his job is to make sure that the first sergeants are doing their job to make sure that the NCOs are doing their jobs. Um, and I know I'm oversimplifying this and I know that there are some who are listening to what I'm saying and, and uh, saying, oh, there's so much more to that. And you're, you're absolutely right. But uh, Andy's podcast only lasts for a certain amount of time. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't have time for the entire military history of, of the role of, of the first sergeant and the sergeant major. Yeah, so... I don't, if our, for our listeners, if you're not sure, you mentioned the safety, there's a lot that does go into reenactment. And I think that's one of the things that is the hardest for a newcomer. So if someone out there is considering joining reenactments, I know for me, I had no idea what went into it, but when that gun fires, you don't have a mini ball in there, but you're actually firing that rifle. Um, so there is a blast that comes out of the muzzle. There's flames, there's gunpowder. Um, and you're in two rows usually. So there's someone in front of you and behind you. So you have to be very cautious when you're firing that. So that's some of the safety that he's talking about. Um, not to mention, not, not to interrupt you, but th there's also the loading process, which can be a safety issue as well. Right. Because um, the minute that you have fired that first round, you now have the possibility of uh, a stray spark or a hot ember down at the, at the end of the barrel. And if you're not loading that rifle properly, there's the chance for a misfire uh, where you either hurt yourself or you hurt the person beside you or in front of you. Uh, so yes, uh, safety really is 
it's paramount because it's it is a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's a hobby. Everybody wants to go home in one piece Sunday evening. Most of us have to go to work on Monday. Now there are some who luck out and they, you know, they take Monday off and that's great. But but it's a hobby. It it really is. And and while some individuals take it uh I don't want to say take it more seriously, they take it to the next level in some respects. Um the, the fact of the matter is, at its core, it's a hobby, mm-hmm. just like bowling, just like fishing, skeet shooting, whatever you want to call, uh, it's it's a hobby. Right, right. And yeah, it can be dangerous. The heat as well, as you mentioned. I mean, I work out a ton, and I'm not going to lie, every single time we have a battle on Saturday, I'm taking a nap Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who played college sports and works out every day, it is exhausting. Um, that heat is no joke, depending on where you're at, especially some of the ones further south, I would imagine, um, can be. Well, and let's, let's explain to them too. We're wearing wool uniforms. Um, there is no such thing as a summer uniform. The, the trousers are wool. The coat is wool. Uh, if you're dressed properly, you have a coat over top of a shirt your trousers are probably over top of a pair of long skivvies. Um, uh, you, you're wearing a hat. So now you've got, you know, that element. Uh, not to mention you're wearing leather uh, accoutrement. So you've got a belt, you've got a cartridge box, you've got a cap box, you've got a haversack, uh, you've got a canteen, and you're carrying a nine-pound rifle. So you, you've got all of that in the middle of summer and you know like like andy said and trust me you're not the only one who takes a nap on saturday <laughs> afternoon <laughs> nothing's better than the naps on a saturday afternoon after a battle it's loud too um i remember the first one i went to was in pennsylvania actually uh i forget which one it was it was a you might know it was a small like a small little fort there it's not a civil war fort but they held a reenactment there. Um, the general got shot at it. He went down in the middle of the reenactment. The rebels were up on a breastwork. I don't know if you remember that. No, it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, that was the first one. And I remember the first thing when we marched to the battle, I heard the cannons and my chest shook. And I was like, wow, that, <laughs> that was the first thing. Like, it's, it's loud too. I, I don't think people realize when there's, you know, 50, 100 rifles going off next to you and there's cannon and stuff, it can be very loud. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, in fact, w- when I started reenacting, I didn't wear uh, any sort of ear protection. Uh, and shame on me because I'm, I'm paying the price for it now. Uh, we now recommend when the new guys come in uh, and that, that they get some sort of ear protection, whether it's, you know, just uh, the old fashioned squeeze it and, and put it in your ear. They now have these ones that it's a real noise can- can- canceler, so you can still carry on a conversation with these things in, uh, but the gunfire is is cut way down, um, and invariably, uh, we'll have one of these young guys. Oh, I I don't need that. I don't need that. And after the battle, they're like, "Hey, so where can I, where can I get these earplug things? Those, I that I think that might not be a bad idea." Well, so yeah. you've been at this for a long time. 
what if someone's listening, if they're thinking, man, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. I don't know what to expect. What can they expect if they show up for their first reenactment? Kind of how the weekend operates, what they'll be doing. All right. So, and again, keep in mind that I'm, I'm going to give a very generic answer. Every reenactment is unique unto itself, unto itself. Um, if you're doing a very large reenactment like a Gettysburg or an Antietam, uh, things are going to be run a little bit differently than, let's say, uh, a local festival or a, uh, a smaller event. But the, the basics are you're going to come in on a Friday. Uh, you are going to uh, probably you have had to register in advance. So you're going to find the registration area. Um, Probably you will have to fill out some paperwork that says, uh, yes, I understand that what I'm doing is a very stupid hobby, but I'm still going to do it anyway. Uh, And I'm I'm not going to sue uh, the the organization that's putting it on. Um, You will then from there, uh, you'll probably be given a map uh, or they will have someone uh, take you to the location where uh, your men are either already stationed or where you are going to be stationed. And you will either set your tent up uh, in a row that has already been formed for tents, or maybe if your company is just now getting on the scene, you know, you're setting your, your uh, company street fresh, uh, I mean, literally fresh uh, from the the top down. Uh, Once you have uh, your tent up, um, my guys, we we help each other. And so no one man is putting his own tent up by himself. Everybody helps everybody else. Um, From that point, then the guys start getting their their tents ready. Um, NCOs probably are going to start seeking out uh, officers to find out, okay, you know, who's in charge uh, of, uh, of what companies, uh, are there any, uh, orders for the evening? Is there a battle today? Uh, some big events, uh, they do a, a Friday afternoon or an early Friday evening battle. Um, but you, you need to find the schedule of events. You need to find out, uh, who your overall commander is going to be. Find out where the water is. Uh, and, and, you know, that sounds goofy, but... You're going to need it. You are. You know, uh, Andy talked about getting hot. Um, one of the things that I harp on uh, from the time I was a corporal, uh, even now as a sergeant major, is making sure that the guys drink water. Uh, <laughs> quick story, when, when I was at... Um, one of the very first events that I did with Bernie's division, uh, I was, I was a first Sergeant and we were out on the field and I knew one of the captains. Uh, he was actually at that time, he was a wing commander and it was a very hot day. And I was telling my guys to drink water and I turned around and I saw him standing there and I said, with all due respect, sir, you need to take a drink of water as well. <laughs> he kind of smirked and he, he took a drink and, over my right shoulder, I saw the colonel and I turned around and I said, Colonel, I think you need to take a drink of water as well. And he kind of looked at me and started to uh, argue with me. 
And the other officer said, I think you better listen to the, what the first sergeant said. He knows his <laughs> insert expl expletive here. And the, the colonel took a drink. And after the battle, he came over to me. And he says, you know what? I want to thank you. I've never had anyone tell me to take a drink on the battlefield. And I rarely do. And I should. Yeah. So anyway, find out where the water buffalo is. Uh, and, and, and don't be afraid to use it. Uh, make sure that the guys are doing water runs. Uh, make sure that they're drinking water the, the whole time they're there. Find out where the firewood is stacked. Um, and then find out where the sutlers are located. Now, for those of you who are not reenactors, the sutlers are the vendors, the individuals that sell items that are usually uh, period correct, everything from uniforms uh, to weapons to forks and knives and plates and shoes. Cigars and pipes, uh, if you forget them. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, find out, it, you know, are there any food vendors? Uh, some of your, especially your smaller uh, events, you're going to have uh, your, your typical hot dogs and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, at the big events, uh, sometimes you, you end up with uh, catered meals that, you know, you pay an extra $10 at the beginning of the weekend and, you know, you can go in and eat, but find out where those are. Find out if there's a ball that's being held on Saturday evening. Uh, it's, it's a nice way to hear some some really cool music. And you meet a nice gal or fella, dependent. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Don't be shy to ask for that dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, we, we talked about setting up the, uh, the, the tents. Make sure you've got all of your gear. Make sure you remembered everything that you need to have. Make sure you've got your cartridge box, cap box, belt, uh, because if you don't, you're not taking the field and you just, you know, wasted whatever the registration fee was and however much you had to spend in gasoline to get there. Right. And there's also, for the listeners, there's a lot of time you wait. There's a lot of time to just hang out, um, be with your company, your group, uh, those around you, uh, sit around the fire, have fun, share stories, talk, play an instrument. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, some people bring instruments and we'll, we'll sit around and play period music, things like that. Um, but it's kind of like the real army. You're waiting for orders. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's the old adage? Um, get ready and wait or hurry up. Yeah. And hurry up and wait. But there's also the, and of course now I'm going to draw a blank on it. Um, <laughs> hours of hours of waiting moments of sheer terror. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the real war, uh, that's what it would have been. Now you, you talked about, you know, guys bringing instruments and, uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, my unit, uh, we like to play games that would have been, uh, played by the soldiers during the time of the civil war. Oh, so the cool. guys are playing, uh, dice, uh, poker, uh, there's a game called Pharaoh that was a very popular game that I may or may not know how to play. Uh, <laughs> uh, just as a quick aside, if you're familiar with the movie Tombstone, 
or the movie Wyatt Earp. Uh, Wyatt Earp dealt Pharaoh. He didn't play the game. He dealt the game. But it was a very popular game at the time of the American Civil War. Um, Horseshoes was wildly popular during the war, as was baseball. And there's documented cases of games of baseball taking place uh, between, you know, when, when, they, when the soldiers had downtime. Uh, and there have been uh, games that have broken out at reenactments as well. It's kind of cool to see because the rules are a little bit different. That is cool. You, yeah. you, had, you had kind of a sly look on your face there when you said you know the rules of Pharaoh. Is there a reason for that? So the... Every member of my unit sort of has their own niche, their own thing that they're really interested in. Uh, my oldest son is very interested in the music of the era. Uh, he plays bugle. He also plays bagpipes. Uh, my youngest son, very interested in uh, the history of the 140th, uh, as well as uh, he has started collecting digital photos of members of the 140th. And so he has contacted uh, ancestors of uh, the members of the 140th so that we can have those preserved digitally uh, over time. Uh, my niche is the games of the era. Uh, and Pharaoh is when the guys want to play a game, and because it, it, it will take a little while to play, so if we've got some time, the guys will typically come around and go, "Hey, hey, Sarge, did you bring your Pharaoh spread?" Like, maybe, <laughs> and uh, and and we'll we'll lay out a, a, a game of Pharaoh. And uh, the the thing is, during the time of the the American Civil War, it actually would have been frowned upon because it is a gambling game. Uh, and gambling was, that was a big no-no. Uh, it was seen as, you know, you, if, if you were caught gambling, you were morally decrepit and uh, you, you didn't want to be caught with a deck of cards on your body when it was sent home if you were killed in battle. But the fact of the matter is, the guys needed something to do. And right. Pharaoh, for me, uh, one of the reasons that I kind of smirked is, uh, Years ago, when I started getting interested in, in the, the different games that the soldiers would play, Pharaoh was one of the ones that kind of popped up. And the guys went out of their way to make me uh, some of the items that are required for the game. Uh, hand painting, uh, a, 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 a spread for me, uh, just a lot of work went into it. That's I have a special... Cool. Yeah, I have a special case that was made for me out of a wooden cigar box uh, to hold uh, multiple decks of cards. Uh, one member of my unit actually gifted me a vintage deck of cards. Now, it's actually, it's post-war. It's probably uh, 1870s. But there are not many full decks of cards that exist uh, at this time, because if, if a deck of cards started to go bad, they just threw them away. Right. So this gentleman acquired a deck of cards 
and he gifted it to me. And it's, it's in a place of honor right here in my den downstairs. Um, so it's, 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 I had bought myself a single card that I want to say I spent probably 10 or $15 on a card. Now there's 52 cards in a deck. So if I spent 10 or 15 on a card and he gifted me a full deck of cards. That's very cool. Yeah. It's, it's, I've got a couple of kind of cool items from the era and, and that one, that one's definitely towards the top of my list. The only one I've been able to procure so far is a mini ball. I do have a mini ball, but oh, there you go. Those, those are plenty. They're not too too hard to, to come across. Yeah, but you know what? The, the the thing is, when you stop and think about it, it's over 150 years old, mm-hmm. and people don't stop to think, oh, it's it's a mini ball. Yeah, but it's 150 years old. It was around at the time of the American Civil War. It was right. used. Or dropped. I mean, you, who knows how it was procured? But yeah, it's it's that's still that's still cool. Yeah. Well, you've been doing this for a long time, so I have to imagine you have some favorite events. What would you say your favorite event you've done would be so far? Oh, um, so I, I I'd be doing a discredit if I if I tried to pick a single event. Um, I'll talk about uh, the the first one that I'll mention is the, the first major event that I attended. Uh, we refer to it as Getty's Bog, B-O-G, because it literally rained from the time we left Greene County, the entire ride out, the entire time we were at Gettysburg, it didn't stop until we were, of course, starting to tear down to come home. <laughs> the only times that the rain let up was when we did the battles. It was, it was actually kind of creepy. Um, but it rained so much, so hard that there were actually streams running between the rows of tents and the soldiers. I, I use the word soldiers, the reenactors were racing uh, tin cups and tin plates down these little <laughs> mini rivers to try to amuse themselves because there was nothing else to do. You couldn't do anything. Um, so we, we get to the event. It's the first time we've been to any big event. We are not a member of any division or battalion. We are, we're, we're lone wolves at this point. We didn't, to be honest, I don't think we realized we needed to be. And so we have nowhere to go. We're wandering around. We found a spot for my wife to set up her tent, which was job number one. We got her set up. And now there's three of us trying to find somewhere to put our tents. And uh, at the time, he was Sergeant Doty. He says, look, there's, there's a little knoll over there. Let's set it up over there. And we're like, wow, this is great. We managed to luck out. We set it up. There's just enough room for our two tents. Uh, Roger had his own tent. I was sharing a tent with a, a gentleman by the name of Dan Rush. And uh, by that time, it's, it's starting to get dark. We're tired. We're wet. We just the heck with it. We're going to bed. About two o'clock in the morning, I wake up to hear Dan smacking. I'm like, what is wrong? Ow, ow, ow. 
we wake up, we throw our blankets back, and there are ants all through our tent. Oh, no. <laughs> we set our tents up on top of an anthill, <laughs> which we, of course, we didn't realize at the time because it was starting to get dark. And um, we quickly realized why no one else had set up their tents there because it was an anthill. <laughs> we managed to get back to sleep, sleep for another few hours. We get up the next morning. Um, it was still sort of drizzling but it had let up enough that we were going to start a fire. And Roger said, you guys better check, make sure that you didn't get any water in your cartridge boxes. And I opened up my cartridge box and it is full to the top with black ants who had found it. At, and because it's up, it was up off the ground, we had hung it on the end of the tent. They had built a nest in my cartridge box complete with they had started moving their eggs into the cartridge box because it was it was high it was dry i'm and i'm freaking out because <laughs> i open it up and they just start pouring i mean it looked like something out of a horror movie <laughs> and so the the joke for years so much so that the guys made a sign for me for the end of my tent that says the ant farm <laughs> and they they would they they hung it on the end of my tent at one of the events and i was just like you know what you're not wrong so <laughs> i still have it to this day i still have the sign it's it says the ant farm on it um uh that that uh, for reasons that i think are obvious uh that event really sticks out um you know some of the small events uh we do we do two local events here in in Greene County. Uh, one is Bridge Festival, the other is Harvest Festival. Harvest Festival is near and dear to our hearts because it was the very first event that we ever did. We had just formed. Um, there were four, maybe five of us. And we, we called up the Historical Society uh, like the week before the event, because we didn't even know that the event was, was going on. Somebody said, oh, you guys, are you going to be set up at the Harvest Festival? And we're like, what? What? I've never thought about that. So we reached out to Brenda Giles. She was at the time, she was the executive director. And we said, look, you know, we're, we're a new unit. Can, can we set up? We've, we've got like two tents, three tents. She's like, well, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So we, we set up. It was more of a, uh, a living history display, although we did shoot at each other. I had a great toy gray cappy that I had bought when I was a kid. Uh, so I, I, I was the one bad guy and they, the, the other two guys that were there, you know, took pot shots at me and I took pot shots at them. Um, we have not missed a harvest festival since then. Wow. Uh, it's our home event. Uh, we have a very good relationship uh, with the Green County Historical Society. Their new executive director, I say new, he's been there for a few years now, uh, Matt Cumberledge, do a shout out to Matt. Um, he is also a reenactor. He is uh, with a uh, uh, the bad guys. He's with the 31st Virginia Barber Grace. Um, but they, we, we have a really good relationship. 
They allow us to hold our meetings uh, in the museum itself. And uh, we set up camp uh, in their front yard for Harvest Festival every year. Um, trying to think of uh, some other events that, but th th those are probably the, the, the two biggest. I mean, we've driven as far south as um, South Carolina uh, to do uh, school visits. Uh, we've driven uh, up into Ohio, uh, which for us, uh, you know, it's, it's a two, two and a half hour, three hour drive, depending on where we're going. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a couple of events, uh, of course, Gettysburg, uh, which for us is about a three and a half, maybe four hour drive. Uh, we've gone into New Jersey to do, uh, a, a boot camp, uh, when we, when we had been with the Mifflin guard. So, uh, Home with the boss, my favorite. There you go. I try to, I try to reference Springsteen as many episodes as I can. I, I think I've got it in like three or four so far. So All right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't see it and the listeners can't, but actually right above my computer here, I got a big picture of him from 75 and then the Born in the USA poster. There so. you go. All right. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So you've done this for a long time, lots of stories, and I got to ask, you, you may not want to admit it since you're a sergeant major. Have you ever done any mischief at an event? Maybe no, mess with a rebel I, camp or something no, like that? No, <laughs> I would never do something like that. Uh, so uh, I, I was, we were doing a smaller event. Uh, at the time, I was a corporal. Uh, it was a sort of a local event. It was taking place uh, in the county north of us, Washington County. Uh, we had fallen in with, um, I don't know if I want to give the other, unit. yeah, I'll, I'll, it's, we, we had fallen in with the 9th Pennsylvania. And again, we were very young. Uh, we had only been in existence for a handful of years, and we were still learning the ropes. Their captain, great guy, treated us so well. Their, their first sergeant uh, became sort of the mentor for Roger Doty, who was, who was, looking to become our first sergeant. Anyway, the, the word was passed around that there was going to be a lot of downtime and that the, the reenactors, the soldiers, uh, should find things to do that the soldiers would have done. Now, we had also been told that the captain of the ninth in real life did not like gambling. And so he carried that over into the reenacting field because the, the captain would not have approved of gambling uh, in his camp. But the word got spread around that, look, if, if you guys want to do it, it needs to be a period game and you need to be ready to face consequences if you're caught. We're like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. So there's a group of guys, they, they had kind of gone behind a set of tents. They had uh, a, a great big uh, log uh, that they had sort of fashioned a, a table and they were playing uh, a dice game and they were using a tin cup as the shaker. So I sat down. Now, keep in mind, I'm an NCO. I should, first of all, I shouldn't be gambling. Second of all, I probably shouldn't be hanging around uh, with the enlisted men. But Hey, what the heck? So 
we're sitting there and there's a couple of my guys and there's a couple of the guys from the ninth and we're having a good time. And all of a sudden I hear one of them go, Oh crap. <laughs> now I had just turned the tin cup upside down. And the, so the dice are under the tin cup. There's a pile of reenactor money stacked in the middle of this log. And I look over my shoulder and there stands the captain and the first sergeant. And the captain says, what is it that you gentlemen are doing? And I looked up and I said, well, sir, I, I was taking up a collection for the orphans and widows fund. And he looks at me and he says, is that so? <laughs> I don't suppose you'd be willing to show me what you have underneath that tin cup. Now, what he didn't see and what he, well, let's take this back a step. Um, when I was in college, I learned some, some magic. And so uh, I, I know some sleight of hand. So while he was talking, I had slid the tin cup over, knocked the dice into my palm and palmed the dice, <laughs> left the tin cup there. And so he says, I don't suppose you'd be willing to show me what's under that tin cup. And I said, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. And I turned the tin cup up. Now, as I'm turning that tin cup up, knowing full well that he's going to be looking at that tin cup, I drop the dice onto the ground and put my knee onto the dice so that they are shoved into the ground. He says, that's very clever. How about you show me both of your hands? Certainly, sir. And I turn both my hands and of course they're empty. And he's, he now, he looks at the, the first sergeant, he looks back at me and he says, I don't know how you did it, but I'm going to take that money for the orphans and widows fund. I said, sir. And I grabbed the money and I hand it to him. I said, sir, you would honor us if you would do that. And I reach in and I happen to have some other uh, reenactor money in my pocket. I said, in fact, sir, would you please add this to that, uh, that small stack of, of bills? <laughs> he looks at me, he takes the money, he looks at me, he says, I still don't know how you did it. I still don't know how you did it. <laughs> I still don't know. And he, turned, he kept repeating that as he turned it and walked away. <laughs> and the guys are like, where are the dice? And I'm like, I don't, I, I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, by the time he then gets into the, uh, the actual camp, I'm like, okay, I need somebody's pen knife because now I got to dig these dice out of the ground. Very good. Very good. So you got away with it with the sleight of hand. There you go. So, so any uh, privates or anyone out there who wants to get away with something at a reenactment, <laughs> you know how. <laughs> Practice your magic. Well, something else I know you like to do at reenactments. What I'm doing right now, listeners can't see. I have a, a nice cigar in my hands right now. And that's something we kind of bonded over. Did you always yeah. have cigars or was that a reenactment thing you picked up? Yeah. So, and, and, and let me, let me qualify this. Um, Cause I, I don't know what your age group is. That's listening. Smoking is bad for you. Uh, you know, there's there's your little public service announcement for the day. Surgeon General's um, warning. Yeah. Um, I don't drink alcohol. I never have. And so 
Uh, I also, I, I don't smoke cigarettes. Uh, I do enjoy, as you know, Andy, I enjoy a good cigar. Um, I'm fortunate that I have, uh, I have a dear friend who owns a cigar shop. And typically before, especially a bigger reenactment, um, I'll drive up to his shop and I'll, I'll, I'll restock. I'm also very fortunate that here in uh, Greene County in Waynesburg, there's a tremendous uh, little cigar shop and at local events, I'll go in and I, I will restock my cigars. And uh, I, I, it's not like I smoke one the entire time that I'm there. I, I will typically enjoy a cigar in the evening hours. Um, but I also found that, and I'll, I'll use Andy as an example, you know, it, it can be a nice icebreaker. Uh, I happened to see that he had a cigar. Uh, we started talking about it and I said, well, you know what, if, if you like a good cigar, I've, I've got one. I'll, uh, you know, this one's for you. And now. That's good too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and so now uh, it, it's sort of become, uh, especially as a Sergeant Major, it's, it's sort of become my thing. Um, there are units, members of units that will seek me out. Hey, I, I know you like cigars. I, I brought you a couple from back home or, uh, Hey, you know, uh, we're getting ready to sit around the fire. You, you want to come over and join us and have a cigar with us. Um, oftentimes they don't believe that I don't drink. Uh, and I, I, it's just, it's never been my, I've never had an alcoholic drink. Um, and so for me, uh, I'll sit around, I'll smoke a cigar. Uh, I do like root beer. And so sometimes I'll, uh, I'll, I'll smuggle a, a modern uh, bottle or two of root beer in, um, but we'll, we'll eat peanuts and, and pistachios. And, you know, you, you talked about sharing stories and singing songs. Um, you know, just like when anytime a, a group of friends get together, it's, it's the same thing. The, the reenacting community as a whole, it's, it's a bunch of like-minded idiots. I mean, <laughs> we, we dress in wool in the middle of summertime for crying out loud, but they really are a community. They really are. And, and even though, um, like I, I, poor Andy and I haven't had a chance to see each other in person for months. Uh, and, you know, schedules get in the way, life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. the, the minute that that fire starts up and the guys start telling stories and, uh, you know, some of them are even true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it out to any this year. Um, I regret it. I wish I had, but it's been a busy, crazy year. So I'm hoping well, yeah, to... and everybody's trying to catch up from, from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, it's, I, I, I talked about this at the beginning reenacting is a hobby you, you you prioritize certain things and uh despite the fact that you know andy's been avoiding me for over a year now <laughs> i couldn't okay. find a cigar good enough to trade with you so that's why. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i for anyone out there listening yeah definitely be careful with the uh the cigars i got i'm looking at this i'll show you since you can see it no one else can i got my picture oh, of right here go. And uh, 
I find it ironic. I, I will admit I like to sit down at night. Um, I guess I'll share this because we'll be announcing it at some point anyway. Uh, one of our writers at for my blog, the Civil War Center, uh, Dr. Lloyd Klein, fantastic. And uh, we're working on um, some writing together, a book about Grant. And, and I like to sit down at night with a cigar and write about the Civil War because I just help. I, I find it helps me get into that mindset but i do find it very ironic i'm looking at the picture of him and i'm thinking i know what you died from so it's probably not the best right the best. right yeah he and, was and like here's the kicker day, so yeah and and the the thing was as as you know as, as a as a fan of of grant um he can almost trace back to the very moment that he started his addiction and he admits it was an addiction for him Mm -hmm. uh, when he was given a box of cigars and then people kind of like my situation, Oh, you like a cigar. Well, here's a box. Oh, here's that's, another That's what box. I thought of when you mentioned that I thought about him after Donaldson. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if people were just shipping me boxes of cigar and one after the other, it'd be hard <laughs> to resist them. But I, I, I could see him, um, being in that kind of, command and, and control over men dying and stuff it'd be hard not to have some vice and i mean he had his alcohol and he stayed away from it and rollins helped him a lot but it, it would be hard to not have a vice like a cigar or something given what he had to see well and you know we talked about we talked earlier about you know the, the hours of nothing going on mm -hmm. you you've you you have to find something to occupy your time. And, and while we joked about the guys playing cards and, and playing music, it was something just to occupy their time for a little while. And for some guys, it was smoking. Some guys, it was whittling. Uh, mm. for, for some, uh, if they could get their hands on tobacco, they chewed tobacco. Um, but just like in today's society, you know, if you're sitting around, well, uh, you know, case in point, I'm, I'm sitting here just, you know, <laughs> fiddling with something that was sitting on my desk. Uh, you know, you something to do with your hands. So, well, we have that down to a science with these things. But now <laughs> yeah, there you go. I've managed, not to pick my, I've managed not to pick my cell phone up at all during this this conversation. So I'm proud of myself. <laughs> um yeah, but, and it would have to be hard, I would imagine, for generals especially. Like you were saying, you're not supposed to interact with the with the privates. So you're not going to be playing a game of baseball if you're Grant. So you're going to Actually, you know what? Here's here's the kicker, though. Uh, officers were oftentimes asked to be the umpires. Really? And so, yes, yes. Uh, there are documented, uh, there's documentation that officers uh, would be asked to be the, the umpires. Uh, some of them... Uh, in order to uh, in order to make sure that there was no question regarding their ruling, they would keep their sidearm with them <laughs> so that there was no question. I said out, and I mean you are out. <laughs> if there is any question, click click. Yeah, that might help yeah. in today's. Well, not now they use the uh, they just go back and review the calls, but that's right. That's but right. Before that. Uh, that would definitely come in handy. I've seen my fair share of arguing with uh, with refs and umpires and stuff over playing sports throughout my life. So it's not a yeah. bad idea. <laughs> I'm a lot like you, though. I um, Cigars are kind of my go-to. I don't drink either. Um, I mean, I have a, a handful of times in my life 
you know, here or there, but I don't, I'm, I'm the same as you. So I stay away from it. Uh, but I do enjoy my cigar while I'm writing about Grant. It helps, it helps put me in his shoes a little bit more. So there you go. Uh, and I can't help but look up to Grant. He's, he's from my home state. He's, he's an Ohio boy too. So there you go. Have you been Good able man. to make it to his, uh, his hometown or birthplace? How? No, I have not. So it's, I don't know how far it would be from you. For me, it's about three hours. It's right on the Ohio River. Um, so I made a trip down there when my brother got married in Cincinnati. We went and saw his birthplace, and then which is Point Pleasant, and then his boyhood home, which is Georgetown. And then in maybe March, it was, we went down and saw, it might have been late, it might have been June, we went down for his 200th birthday celebration in Georgetown. Oh, nice. It was really cool. And uh, you can see the house that Jesse built, Jesse Grant built by hand. Um, it's cool. It's very cool to see him there. Uh, I did an episode. The first episode I ever did was with Kurt Fields. You know him? The, he portrays. Yes, I'm familiar with him. Yeah, I sat down with him and we talked about it. And uh, he, to he told the story of that stone that Grant moved that weighed like two tons. Yes. And, uh, they have that outside of the house now. It's really cool to see. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, they tore it. was uh, Dr. Buckner's house and they tore it down um, the home that he lived in. But they somehow managed eventually to get it back to, to the boyhood home. So now it sits out front. It's very cool. Nice. Very very cool. nice. I, I have to come out to your neck of the woods. I need to make a trip to Gettysburg. I talked to uh, Dr. Peter Carmichael from Gettysburg College. A couple months ago, and he was on me about it. He's like, "You got to come to Gettysburg. You got to come to Gettysburg." So I was like, I "So have you? Have you never been to Gettysburg?" I have been, but I was a little kid. So that was when my okay. I was similar. I was always interested in the Civil War when I was a kid. I had the soldiers. I would paint them. I'd set up dioramas in my family, my parents' family room. I'd put little cop balls on the end and make it look like smoke. Oh wow! Yeah, I did. I did the whole thing, and then kind of got older. Life gets in the way, and then about. Two or three years ago now, I, I came across a podcast by uh, Scott Rank and James Early, and it's a phenomenal overview of the Civil War, the, the major battles of the Civil War, uh, key battles of the American Civil War is what it's called for the listeners, and it kind of reignited it for me, and so ever since then, I've just been reading and writing and doing this podcast, and it's been great. I've met a lot of cool people and had some interesting discussions, learned a lot of things. It's been a phenomenal experience. Excellent. And, and the great thing is there are so many, so many fabulous books out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you could start reading now and, and never get to all of them uh, by the time that you were called to the great beyond. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I spoke with the, uh, Ted Savis. He does, um, I don't know if you know him. He has a Civil War publishing company. Okay. Um, we spoke last week. And he said he has 5,000 Civil War books in his collection. Oh, not all Civil War, but most of them are. Some World War II. He said he likes German U-boats. but And he said, he's like, yeah, I, mean, I haven't read them all. I, I just finished uh, To Rescue the Republic about Grant, which was a good one. Um, but yeah, there's, and there's constantly new ones coming out. That's the thing. There's always a new perspective somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and every person brings their own... Um, niche you know mm -hmm. we talked about my my love of of the games of the civil war um if if you were to write a book it would be written from your perspective you would right. concentrate on certain things that i would never think to 
to concentrate on. And, and that's what makes each one of those books truly unique. Yeah, well, I was surprised because Lincoln, there's, you know, all, I mean, second most books about him than anyone in history. And I interviewed a, a lady who wrote a book, um, Renette, uh, Renette Chilton, and she wrote a book about his great coat that he was assassinated in. He wore for his second inauguration, had wow. never had a book written about it. And this phenomenal story, like they tried to auction it off for like 50, 60, 70 years. No one would buy it. And it just sat in a, in a trunk for like, you know, almost a century. Um, and it made its way back to Ford's theater eventually. And it's just, it's amazing. There's always like, it, it's inexhaustible. It really is. Yeah, you're exactly right. Absolutely. It's four to five year period uh, in, in the 1860s. And it's incredible. But, well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I learned quite a bit myself. Uh, I particularly <laughs> enjoyed the dice story. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything you want to leave our listeners with or if they have questions is there a way they can contact you or support you guys so the, the thing that i would say is if you're interested in getting into the reenacting hobby um get in touch with uh, uh you know find a, a a unit that's in your area uh support them uh, there and there are you know when the pandemic hit uh, our hobby took a, a real hit. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the guys that were, um, not quite as young as they used to be, uh, over that two year period, you know, started selling off some of the gear. So if you're looking to get into the hobby, you may, this may be a good time for you because you may be able to pick up some really good equipment, some, some good uh, uniforms. But I would say this, if you're going to get into the, the hobby, first find a unit. Don't start buying stuff. Mm -hmm. Find a unit first because you want to buy equipment that is appropriate to the unit that you're going to be joining. If you're joining, um, let's say you're going to join an artillery unit. You don't need to be spending a bunch of money on a rifle and, and that sort of stuff. You're going to need a specific type of uniform. The, uh, the unit that we represent, that I represent, the 140th, our research indicates that the majority of the men wore uh, what were called frock coats. And so a lot of my guys, that's what they've chosen to start wearing. Now, you don't have to wear that. There are some other units that they don't want you wearing a frock coat. And so if you go out and buy a frock coat and show up at, at their event, they're going to be like, no, sorry. Mm -hmm. Thanks for playing. Take your ball and go home. So find a unit and ask them, what is it that I need? How can I get started with you? Um, and, and ask questions. That's the best thing to do ask questions because they've got guys in that unit that know what they're doing mm -hmm. hands down and as you can tell <laughs> andy and i like to talk <laughs> and and reenactors we do we we love this hobby we love this era some guys take it very some some are when I first started, they referred to them as stitch counters. Mm -hmm. They wanted everything to be as authentic as possible. 
which is great. There are other units that are uh, what, what we used to refer to as 20 yarders. If you look good at 20 yards, then, then it's okay. My unit, in my opinion, we're somewhere in between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're not stitch counters. We're not going to stand there and, and go, oh, well, that isn't hand sewn. Uh, but we're also not going to let you fall into our ranks wearing a pair of tennis shoes either. Um, but every unit has their own rules, their own regulations. Uh, be respectful of that. And uh, again, ask questions. That's mm. the best thing to do. And I think it's just, if you're thinking about doing it, it's just doing it. It's just taking that step into the unknown. I mean, I remember I just went on Facebook. I found a couple groups in Ohio. The 66 was the one that fit best. They had equipment for me I could borrow. And I just took the leap and I drove out to Pennsylvania and it was a great time. And so I I think if you're on the fence about doing it, you just give it a shot. Now, I I will throw this out. Um, Like any hobby, uh, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. if you're going to do it right, you you are probably going to shell out a few thousand dollars. And I, I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not saying that to uh, to be a naysayer. But you, you need to go in with your eyes wide open. A, a, a coat and trousers, that's going to set you back two or three hundred dollars or more, depending on mm-hmm. where you get it. Uh, rifle, you're looking at seven hundred to a thousand dollars. That's a real uh, rifle you're getting. So, yeah, right. Right. Don't. <laughs> Don't just go out and buy a rifle because if the unit that you're representing is a sharpshooter unit, they're going to require you to have a specific type of rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, first find a unit, ask them questions and, and go from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast with Doug Wilson. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, share, and leave a review as it helps the podcast grow. And as always, head to the to learn more. And please consider...